One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely give up, get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's really great to see you today at EU public meetings. I want to introduce you to something which is quite revolutionary today, and you can't fall asleep for this. Something which, by God's grace, has changed countless lives for centuries. Today, I want to introduce you to the concept of extraordinary prayer. You might recall that last week we observed how prayer is fairly common and regular. Uh, not necessarily all people pray, but all types of people pray, whether it be through fairly, fairly fixed habits, like in Islam, which tells you when you need to pray and how many times throughout the day, <clears throat> or prayer techniques like you find <clears throat> in the Buddhist prayer wheel, or meditation through yoga or mindfulness. Prayer is a common part of our human experience. The other feature of regular prayer is its focus on fairly normal, mundane matters. When we pull into a parking lot, we might shoot up a quick prayer for that golden parking spot. Before we head into an exam or even during an exam, we may say a prayer or spend reading time practicing mindfulness, which might not be too helpful if you're empty in your mind just before you have to come and write, write 3,000 words. We pray because we're tired. We pray because we're sick. We pray because we're busy. And this is all common garden variety, ordinary prayer. And what's more, they're all good things to pray for. I've run late far too often, far too many times, praying for that provision of a parking spot, and that's solved many high-stress situations for me. Uh, but none of this is extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer is prayer which sustains significant uh, spiritual renewal and revival. This phrase, extraordinary prayer, comes from the 8th century American pastor named Jonathan Edwards. Has anyone heard of Jonathan Edwards? A few. 
Has anyone heard of or heard the musical Hamilton? A few more well, nods, no hands here. Um, Jonathan Edwards is Aaron Burr's grandfather, so you should definitely know him. He's also America's leading thinker of the 1700s. And for Edwards, extraordinary prayer is prayer which seeks first the kingdom of God for the world and for ourselves. And I want our grammar and vocabulary of extraordinary prayer. Now, if you missed public meeting last week, you missed the first in a two-part series on prayer. Although we could have pursued other options, we're letting the Lord's Prayer be our guide. Because in this prayer, Jesus explicitly and methodically and radically shows us what prayer is. Incredibly, he teaches us to pray like he does, to approach the maker of everything as our Father. Jesus calls us to experience the same intimacy and delight in God that he enjoys. And that got us through about the first four words of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. However, we observed last week that prayer is not just about enjoying God like Jesus does, it's also about aligning the desires of our heart with God's plans and purposes for the world. Extraordinary prayer is about friendship with God and it's about his kingdom because seeking communion with God leads to seeking his kingdom. Seeking intimacy with God leads to submitting to him as Lord. Enjoyment leads to supplication for ourselves and the world. Now, although we've, we've just read from Luke, we're going to stick with the version of the Lord's Prayer that you'll find in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible in front of you, you probably want to open Matthew 6. You'll notice that the Lord's Prayer is made up of six different petitions. Three kind of for the world and three kind of for ourselves. The external and the internal. Uh, so as we delve into this prayer of prayers today, we'll take things in that order for the world and for ourselves. But first, as we come to think about prayer, let me lead us in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, teach us to pray. Let your kingdom come and your Father's name be hallowed amongst us. Dwell richly with us today and sanctify our hearts so that we would live for the praise of your glory. Amen. Now you might notice that Jesus' prayer begins with a paradox. We're praying for something which is seemingly already true. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. But isn't, isn't God's name already holy? Is he not already reigning? Can his will really be frustrated? So what exactly are we praying for here? Is it maybe because we live our lives as if he isn't holy, as if he isn't already reigning? Just as light is absent to those who keep their eyes closed deliberately and intentionally, so it seems it's possible to close our eyes to God's holiness and authority. And this, for Jesus, seems to be the cause of all our problems, that we love the darkness rather than the light. All material and cultural and social 
political and psychological and spiritual problems ensue from this blindness. Because without God, we can't really see what the world is like. And when we're left to the devices of our own heart, all we have are the fleeting and changing whims of our desires. So to petition for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done is a lordship petition for God to open our eyes, asking that he would extend his royal power so that we might submit every aspect of our lives under his authority. Our emotions and desires, our choices and commitments, our thoughts, our wealth, our bodies. Let your kingdom come and reign in my very self. We're asking God to rule us so that we would want to obey him with all our hearts and with joy. Uh, One of the old prayers in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer puts it this way, that we may obtain that which thou dost promise, make us love that which thou dost command. It's asking that God would rule us so that we would want want to obey him from the very depths of our heart, May we, that we may obtain that which thou dost promise, make us to love that which thou dost command. You can start to see, though, that this division between external and internal, between ourselves and the world, is a little bit artificial, because the petition for God's name to be hallowed is to ask for God's name to be hallowed, not just outside of us, but in my own life as well. It's asking for God to give us, to give me, a grateful heart, a joyful heart towards him and a wondrous sense of his beauty and grace. And yet when our hearts grasp who God is, when he opens our blindness, when he opens our eyes, we'll never be content to pray this only for ourselves. We'll never be of so miserly of spirit as to imagine that God's plans and purposes don't extend beyond ourselves. Which is why the Lord's Prayer is not just maintenance prayer. Do you know maintenance prayer? Maintenance prayer is entirely introspective prayer, focusing on the immediate needs of a person or a church. It tends to be short and very mechanical, the kind of prayer you need to get through the day. And the Lord's Prayer is of an entirely different order of prayer. It's extraordinary prayer prayer which yearns for friendship and intimacy with God, for our Father to be rightly rightly and duly honoured, not only in ourselves, but also out in the world, for his name to be magnified, like we see in Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And this is the point that Jesus is needing into our souls. To approach God as Father like Jesus does will mean that you begin to see the world like Jesus does, as the fear of God's glory, as a place where his name is to be hallowed. Not only will it change the way you think about your needs and hopes and fears and concerns, your questions and perplexities and sins, it will change the way you see the world. Jesus pray in this way, so that our hearts and desires might long for God to perfect his creation and to be glorified here on earth. It's a yearning for God 
to Syria and North Korea and Manus Island in Redfern and Taramara, Lakamba and Sydney University for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer for us to not be satisfied with the fleeting and imperfect justice and peace we know all too well and instead yearn for God to finish his work amongst us so that righteousness might make its home. And once you put that in place, once you get this right, everything else will follow. If you know God as your heavenly Father, who is good and trustworthy, then of course you will want his fame and renown to spread throughout the earth. It's a prayer for God to be glorified amongst all people, just as he is glorified amongst us. When you can approach God like Jesus does, then adoration and worship will naturally be your first response because nothing else should take supreme place of our Father in our life. And yet it's pretty clear that God's name is not hallowed in this world, which begs the question, doesn't it? How could you tell if God is top priority in your life? In Matthew 6, which we looked at last week, Jesus says you can tell through what you do on your own and in secret. If there's no adoration, if there's no worship, if there's no invocation of God's ruling presence here on earth, then that may well be the sign that something else has taken root in your heart besides God as top priority. And that's the point, do you see, of these first three petitions that it's about God and nothing else can take his place. Our prayer life is to be first and foremost God-centered because only he is worthy of the adoration and gratitude of our hearts. And that adoration and gratitude will heal and clarify our vision of the world, of ourselves, and of God, which would otherwise be blinded and curved in on ourselves. The beginning of prayer is all about God before we come to God with our needs, before we even come to God in confession for our sins, Jesus teaches us to yearn to see God's greatness and see it acknowledged here on earth as it is in heaven. So I wonder, do your prayers reflect this? Your prayers on your own, our prayers in small groups and at church, do they reflect this? Jesus is teaching us to pray for God to put the world right as his name is hallowed amongst us. For the haughty to be made low, for the poor, the despised, and the humble to be exalted. For those who enrich themselves through injustice and practice war to be vanquished, and for those who long for peace to be satisfied. Do your prayers reflect this? I think you, you see this kind of reflected in the other thing Jesus told us to pray for. In Matthew 9, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, healing the sick and teaching up in Galilee. And the people, they flock. Crowds come up to Jesus. And it's almost like there's too many people for Jesus to handle. So what did Jesus do? Matthew 9, 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, 
beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. There's a problem, you see, and what is Jesus' first instinct? He prays that God would provide what, what is lacking. He, pray, he tells us to pray that God would raise up workers so that his kingdom would continue to be proclaimed. And you might even apply this to your studies here at university. One of my friends at Bible college would often finish his lectures by writing a prayer, praising God for what he had just learned about him and thanking him for that education. He even once wrote a prayer adoring God at the end of a doctrine exam. And I'm not really sure what mark he got for that prayer. But when I found out about it, I was like, I was kicking myself, wishing that I'd done the same kind of thing here at uni. After all, if God created everything, if we want his name to be hallowed everywhere, if we want his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven, then that's going to include education and economics, engineering and English, philosophy and vet, biology and gender studies. Why don't you start praying for your academic discipline here at uni, asking for God's will to be done in agriculture and commerce and international relations as it is in heaven? The funny thing is that your lecturers are actually helping you understand God's world. They're training you to understand the way God has made his world, and they don't even know it. So why don't you pray about what they teach you? I suspect that if we did that increasingly, we'd be better prepared to love and serve God with our minds than we are presently. In James chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God will begrudge us nothing, no good thing which we ask for. And so pray confidently, pray with boldness. We saw that in our reading from Luke 11 about praying with shameless audacity in verse 8. The Greek there is, it's a, it's a funny word, it stands out. It could be translated like impertinence or ignoring all social convention. Jesus teaches us to be persistent and bold in our prayers because we have a God who not only runs the universe, but is also our Father and cares for us, who cares for this world. So Jesus teaches us to pray that God would accomplish his plans and purposes in the world. Let his kingdom come. Which brings us to the internal dimension of the Lord's Prayer. If the first three petitions are kind of about what God's doing to perfect his world, these final three petitions are about God's perfecting work in us. We move from the external to the internal in verse 11. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Here at last, we, we come to our needs, which is quite a relief. We get to pray for ourselves finally, which seems to be the thing we're pretty good at doing. Except that even here, Jesus needs to teach us how to pray. He needs to, he has to. Otherwise, we would pray dangerously, seeking to either feed our own egos or to manipulate God into giving us the dangerous treasure of our hearts. 
If Jesus doesn't teach us to pray for ourselves, we would not pray as we ought. And so Jesus is teaching us here to align our needs with God's purposes for the world. Now, to ask for our daily bread is to come to God asking for our necessities rather than any luxury. In Jesus' day, you may know bread was a staple diet of ordinary people who by and large lived dependent on day-to-day work for their survival. There was no social welfare system for them to fall back on. They needed their daily bread. And so this prayer is a prayer for our preservation in the midst of scarcity and lack in the world. And I find this to be immensely challenging many years to be a consumer. In the early 21st century, this is my identity. I buy things. And I get whatever I want, whatever my heart desires. DVDs and books, (laughs) all the books, and clothing, they're flown around the world and delivered to my door. And when the shirt wears out or the jumper fades, I get to do it all over again with a little tap on my phone, and it's so convenient, especially when I don't have to walk to the post office. In fact, the only time that I've ever been knocked back was when I tried to buy something from London last year, I think, and they wanted me to send them a check. My phone doesn't even recognize check as a word anymore. No one's got time for that. But because I've been trained to be a consumer, I've been fueled by scarcity that what I'll have will never be enough to satisfy me, that I'll always need more. And so what I'm left with is my desire, my voracious, intense, obsessive, destructive desire. And Jesus trains us, he teaches us in a different way to trust that God will provide us with what we need and to pray for his abundance not necessarily what we want, but what we need. To come to God with our empty, outstretched hands, because that's all we can ever bring to God is our need, and find our filling and satisfaction in Him. Perhaps the most significant area where we will feel the satisfaction or lack thereof will be in our relationships with God and with others. Jesus says in verse 12 of Matthew 6, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It seems that Jesus tightly links our relationship with God to our relationship with others. And I think this works two ways. ways. If we've not seen our sin and sought radical forgiveness from God, we will be unable to forgive and seek the good of those who have wronged us. So essential is forgiveness and belonging to God. It's kind of like the currency that we operate in in the kingdom, that there can be no room in our hearts to retain feelings of hatred or for holding a grudge or wallowing in our bitterness or to plot revenge or ponder any occasion to cause harm. Because to the degree that you have grasped just how scandalous and radical it is that God has forgiven you your sins, to that same degree will you be prepared to forgive others, foregoing the debt that they owe you. Now, there's lots more we could say, and reconciliation. But if you let this petition 
sink into your soul the way Jesus intends. It will smite your pride and shatter your ego. But true repentance, which apprehends grace, always brings with it exaltation. It will empower you to draw confidence from the gospel, producing joy in your life as you let go of claims against others, just like God has done with you. And we need this dynamic empowering of God's grace in our lives because the final petition adds a somber note to the prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is aware of our necessities, but he's well aware of the realities of our situation. Lead us not into temptation or trial, he says, but deliver us from evil. Here again are the external and the internal mingled together. For there are temptations from within ourselves, on the one hand riches and power that drive for a deep economic connection that tempt us to believe that we don't need God. And on the other hand, poverty and disgrace and affliction that tempt us to become estranged from God. And then there are those trials from outside ourselves, malignant forces that wish to do us harm. And Jesus teaches us that we need deliverance from all of these things. Note, though, that this petition is not asking God to spare us from temptation altogether. Trials will come. They are unavoidable until the day when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Rather, this request is that we would not fall into temptation. To enter into temptation, ability of giving in to sin. And what we need, Jesus says, is the protection to not be consumed by that prospect. The interesting thing is that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has just passed through a serious season of temptation like this. In Matthew 4, Jesus has just been put on trial and tempted by the evil one. What Jesus was offered was a way of being God's son without having to endure trial, without having to undergo death. But God's promise for his son that we read in places like Psalm 16 is that the son would not avoid death, but that he would be saved from the effects of death, from corruption and decay. And so Jesus faithfully endured the temptation and the trial, not just in that one instance in Matthew 4, but throughout his life. He endured the trials he faced, going all the way to death, all the way to hell, trusting in God's deliverance and vindication. And in the same way, we who approach God as Father are called to endure various trials and temptations in our life as we wait for God to act. In praying this petition, we are asking God to deliver us. We are entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father that he would give us the patience we need to faithfully endure and wait. And it's a cry for God, actually, that he would give us the strength we need to persevere It's a cry that we can only put on our lips, though, because Jesus has cried it out first. He endured temptations all the way to the cross, 
forgiving those who sinned against him and nailed him to the tree, depriving himself of the bread of life, so that when we are tempted, we too might endure. When you get that he did this for you, when you get that he endured to the point of death, so that sin would not no, long, no longer have any stranglehold on you, that's when you'll be empowered to endure any trial and temptation that life throws at you. Riches and power and honour, poverty, dishonour and death, none of these will have the power to overwhelm your soul and crush you because your life is safe with Jesus, because we follow a crucified and resurrected Lord who entrusted himself to his Father's abundant deliverance. And this, then, is the Lord's Prayer. It has a shape to it. It moves from adoration and worship to our need and confession. Yet constant throughout the prayer is the yearning for God to completely reign over both the external and the internal, over our bodies and the world. And we would do very well to let this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, stamp itself on our prayers, shaping them all the way down into our grammar, into our language, into our souls. Because this is a prayer which shows us how to experience the satisfaction of our hearts through knowing God as our Father, enjoying God as our Father, and aligning our hearts with his perfecting of the world. And so let's draw the threads together this afternoon. We've seen over the last two weeks that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching us to pray. Prayer is about experiencing intimacy and communion with God, aligning our hearts with his plans for the world, both those external ones outside of us, but also the internal ones inside of us. The Lord's Prayer leads us to rest in God, to adore and magnify our Heavenly Father so that we might bring our needs to him. And Jesus gives it to us that we might model and frame our prayers on it. This prayer of prayers needs to shape our personal prayer life. It needs to shape what we do when we're on our own and in secret. But it would be a mistake if we left it there and didn't allow it to infiltrate our public prayers as well. The Lord's Prayer, you may know this, is given to us in plural form. We ask God to give us what we need. And it's just a profound spiritual truth, actually, that our faith is nourished by our corporate prayer life, that our private, personal prayers are shaped by our public devotion. And it just so happens that we have an opportunity to do exactly this, to come together before our Heavenly Father and pray. We've got the first all Union EU prayer meeting happening next Monday. And so it's worth taking a moment to consider the nature of these kinds of prayer meetings. We've been drawing a distinction, a contrast between extraordinary prayer and maintenance prayer. Maintenance prayer is prayer that's designed to preserve the status quo of introspection, to just keep things running. And it's a good thing that things keep running. It's a good thing that the EU website doesn't suddenly crash 
It's a good thing that people register for ANCON, and you should do that today. But that's maintenance prayer. It's not frontline prayer. It's not extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer, like the Lord's Prayer, is prayer that has, through church history, sustained significant spiritual renewal and revival. And such prayer has been typified by three features. I'll see if I can find this on the screen. Firstly, a yearning for intimacy with God. Second, a zeal for the flourishing of God's kingdom. And thirdly, a dependence on God's grace in order to confess our sins and to meet all our needs. I think you see it in the book of Acts when the disciples are threatened and beaten by the authorities, told they can't go on preaching Jesus Christ. And instead of praying for the protection of themselves and their families, they only ask for boldness to keep preaching. That's extraordinary prayer. And the other feature about extraordinary prayer is that it is prevailing and corporate in nature. It takes sustained prayer, not just one-off hit and runs, involving not just us or one or two others, but many Christians. Extraordinary prayer is continuous and bold and specific. And you can see an incredible example of this this kind of example of corporate spiritual renewal it comes from Korea. You may know that uh, Korea in 1900 had a tiny Christian population. The fraction of Christians in Korea was about 0.04%. Uh, Christian missionaries from the West had only arrived about 25 years earlier, and it was tiny. But in 1903, in the city of Wonsan, there was a Canadian missionary, R.A. Hardy was his name, and he was preparing to teach on prayer. And he came upon a passage that Isa read for us earlier, Luke 11:13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And as he reflected on Luke 11, Hardy was deeply convicted that his missionary work had been motivated by a desire to prove himself to others, that he had not based it on grace or prayer or the Holy Spirit. Instead of faith in Christ's justification, he was seeking to justify himself, and that had led to a lack of joy and prayer, grace and power in his life. And he stood up and gave this testimony in front of a Korean congregation, publicly repenting of his pride and his hardness of heart and his lack of faith in Christ. And the effect was electrifying because in a Confucian culture, no one could ever consider losing faith like this. And it sparked renewal. People began to pray and repent and speak seek Christ's spirit in their midst. Churches began to grow. And in 1906, out of this renewal, a Korean university student by the name of Sun Jul Kil organized the first early morning prayer meeting 
which met at 30 a.m. in the morning. We're thinking about bringing this to Ancon this year. It was quite exceptional and extraordinary, and it galvanized the Korean church. And it led to a Bible conference, much like ANCON, that met in Pyongyang on January 17, 1907, and a huge crowd gathered, about 1,500. That's, that's twice the size of ANCON, right? It's huge. And at the end of the 17th of January, the preacher concluded his sermon by calling for prayer and encouraging people to pray aloud if they wish. And the whole audience began to pray out loud and in unison. It was described like the falling of many waters, and it captivated the congregation, and people suddenly felt this urge to, to confess their sins and pray. And this meeting that was meant to finish kept going until about 2 a.m. the next morning. That also might be coming to Ancon this year. They were praying with confession and weeping. And in the next few days, people began to return things that they'd stolen. Uh, one guy returned about a million dollars, the equivalent of a million dollars that he'd borrowed from a merchant and never intended to pay back. It was incredible. We had, said one attendee, prayed to God for an outpouring of his Holy Spirit upon the people, and he had come. And you can trace the long march of Christianity through Korean society and culture over the last 100 years from this point. Today, the number of Christians in South Korea is about 30% of the population. And around the world, the number of Koreans who are Christian, they estimate to be about 50% of all Korean people. This was extraordinary prayer, incredible prayer that sought God, our Father, that came to him seeking his plans and purposes for the world and came to him with needs and confessions. So I would encourage you to make the most of the opportunity we have in our own lives and also next Monday to come together and pray. Let's seek our Heavenly Father in prayer and ask that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's take Jesus at his word and pray boldly and specifically and seek our Heavenly Father for the sake of his name amongst ourselves here at this university, in this city, and around the world. Let's pray. For his is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. Amen. I'm going to now be leading us in a time of prayer. I think it's only appropriate that we pray the Lord's Prayer together. If you don't know the words, you can find them in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 9. Um, so I'll give you a few seconds to do that, and then I'll lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.